Thank you. I love the, uh, I love the cowboy hats and the boots right down here. <laughs> that was really good. Before we jump into Isaiah, I want to bring to your attention a couple things on the back of your bulletin. Uh, the very first one is Vacation Bible School at the top. Now, I know, I know. Now, if you're older, you're going to tune out what I'm about to say. Don't tune it out. Stop and listen. You notice it says we need volunteers, okay? It also says that all sorts of donations of these, uh, all kinds of things, we need your help. We also need you to pray. Mark said this morning that uh, we had 7,000 registered already. So uh, <laughs> this place, the chairs are gone, and we have over 300 in here. This is an important part of our ministry as a church. Last year, we had 75 unchurched families represented by the over 300 children that came. So please, look for ways to get involved and pray. And if you just want to see what it's like, walk in sometimes during Vacation Bible School Week. Wow, it's an amazing thing. The second thing is uh, the class that I'm teaching is not this Wednesday, but a week from Wednesday. When I first got here, the elders, we were discussing, I asked the question, what, what's the criteria that you use to decide to obey a command in the New Testament or not, to ignore it? There's lots of things that we don't obey. Just because the Bible says something doesn't mean we need to obey it. And so how do you make that decision? So we've been working through that. We spent time at our last elder retreat sorting that out. And so they asked if I would teach a class for those of you that might be interested. So it's not this Wednesday, but it's a week from Wednesday. How to get from the text to life. That whole middle section of what do you do with this stuff? Um, finally, I want to say a word about Nepal. The, uh, by now, you're all aware of the disaster that's unfolding. It's not, we're not done yet. You probably saw yesterday the uh, earthquake, 6.6, I think it was. They've had over 100 now uh, since last week. And um, as you know, I travel there. I have lots and lots of friends. And so last weekend, I was in conversation via this with lots of people. And by about Sunday night, uh, Monday morning, they all began to drop off as their batteries died because there's no electricity. So I stayed in contact as long as I could. The last of their messages to me, um, one of them, one of my female students said, um, I said, how are you doing? And she said, uh, my brother is no longer on the earth. It tells you how, they how she translates. So I wrote back and I said, does that mean that he died in the earthquake? And she said, yes, sir. And um, she said, um, I've now gone three, we've gone three days with no water. Uh, we have no place to live. Our houses are destroyed. We're sitting out in the... Uh, fields, pouring down rain, um, no food or water. Just pray for um, God's mercy for us. Isn't that great? Pray for that. So uh, this morning, three of them, actually starting last night, three of them reconnected so I could tell they found a way to charge their batteries. Um, shows you how dependent we are on electricity. So uh, one of them uh, my, actually, my translator, who I've known for almost the whole 10 years I've gone there, he's a very good friend. I said, tell me what's happening. What's going on? You may have seen the paper this morning. If you notice, they uh, just shut the airport down. The, uh, their, one, their international airport has one runway, and um, it was already weakened through the earthquake, and now they're in their early part of the rainy season, so the torrential rains, uh, the, air, the runway gave way. So now they don't even have ways to get uh, large planes in to bring supplies. So here's what my friend said. I asked him, I said, are you able to get good water, water that's safe that you can drink? And he said, uh, Jim, the foods are very expensive. I'm, I'm kind of working through his broken English to make it a little more palatable for you here. It's not that I can't read. 
The foods are very expensive here in Kathmandu. They're selling water for 550 rupees. That doesn't mean much to you, but this will. Before the earthquake, they sold for 40 rupees. Now they're selling for 550. They can't get water out of the tap because of no electricity. So they have to purchase water. And uh, most of them don't have the money to do that. So um, this is, by the way, the same pattern that happened in Haiti, what you're about to hear. Okay. I'm going to visit my hometown. People are dying there without food and about without foods and tents. So uh, they don't have a place to, to live. He said all week long he and his wife had been sleeping in a wheat field with their neighbors. Um, he told me before his battery died that uh, there were dead bodies all around, and they were trying to stack up the bodies to wait for the emergency aid relief. The biggest needs is tents. There is very heavy rainfall after the earthquake, and the earthquakes are continuing. We've now had over 100. There has been... There has not been rescued teams. So he lives in Kathmandu, and he's not seen a rescue worker for a week. Dead bodies under the rubble are stinking so badly. Many diseases are already emerged. There is no places in hospitals. Most of hospitals are full now with sick and injured people. Uh, if we could at least buy tents, we could distribute them to remote areas and have uh, an impact in service. Uh, we don't have any money. Now, as similar with other countries, um, we were just informed that the government is, uh, is taking all the money that's being wire transferred in. So, there's no way to overstay how desperate these people are. Now, I don't want you to feel guilty. God has blessed us. And I enjoy that. I honestly don't know how to help them. And I've been going there 10 years. I don't even know how to get money to them to help out. They are completely in the hands of the Lord. And uh, you hear their cries. They have good attitudes. All of them uh, have been saying the same thing. Just pray for God's mercy. So uh, I'd like to invite you to join me right now. And let's pray for this nation. Father, we lift up this, this small nation Lord, with a very rapidly growing Christian population, but still very small, less than 2%. Um, God, in accordance with their requests, we cry out for mercy on their behalf. Uh, Lord, I, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the wherewithal to know even how to help them. Um, I wish I did, but you do. You have a lot of experience in this that we don't have. So God, we, we plead on their behalf that you would show kindness and mercy to them. And Father, I pray that uh, during this time also that in keeping with their wishes, they desire so much to share your son with the people around them that are still dying right in front of them. To go a week with uh, very little food and water and no emergency help, Lord, I don't know what that would be like sitting out in the torrential rainstorms. No place to go. So God, show yourself to them in ways that they understand ways that make sense to them. And Lord, give them opportunities to share uh, your goodness with their friends and neighbors who are Hindu and Buddhist. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Isaiah. Um, one of the questions we're going to wrestle with, uh, and it very much connects with what I just said, was how can be witnesses to a God who... Um, uh, 
doesn't always do things that we expect. He doesn't always operate in our lives in ways that reflect what to us would be goodness. It's hard to testify, isn't it? Some of you have been in lawsuits. Um, when I was in the corporate world, I had been in several lawsuits. I know what it's like. When you call witnesses to the witness stand, who do you call? Do you call broken people? Do you call idiots? Do you call people who are not very well spoken? Like us? Who do you call? Well, you call the best, don't you? You call the people that are going to get represent you very well, the best and the brightest, the most articulate. Watch what happens today. You're going to be something, see something just astounding about the Lord. We've entitled this series, The Lord Speaks, because uh, Isaiah, at the very beginning in verse 2, says the Lord has spoken. And all the way through Isaiah, he keeps saying the Lord speaks. And so we've called this The Lord Speaks. Isaiah is a difficult book. Some of you have read it. I know I've been enjoying your emails and texts to me and conversations. It's very confusing, isn't it? It's not written like a linear book like we read. It just doesn't work that way. Um, it's very challenging. So what we've decided to do, Mark and I, is to surface for you the key themes, several of them, that float to the, float to the surface when you read it. Today we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be witnesses because the Lord calls his witnesses to the witness stand, and that's us. What does that mean? We're also asking how we fit into the story because this book is a, is a book about people that uh, they're not only failures, they're rebellious failures. Uh, they are, they have just turned away from the Lord and gone in the opposite direction. And in the middle of that, he still decides to show grace. And so what happens when we mess up? Because we all do. We're all going to. Uh, we're going to keep doing it. So what happens? And it just gives us insight into what, how the Lord looks at us when we mess up. Let's start with a real simple thought. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things real and possible. On the day he saved you, he knows the worst thing you are going to do. And he's not surprised. You might be, and we are, but he's not. Here's kind of what happens, I think, in heaven, if I can dramatize a little bit. You have God sitting there, and Christ at his right hand, and he, he says, watch this. See Rob Schmidt? He's going to do it. He's going to do it. Oh, he did it. <laughs> he's not surprised at all. Now, we are, but he's not. And so this gives us a glimpse into how God views us by looking at how he viewed a rebellious nation. Remember from earlier when we started Isaiah back in chapter 5 that the Lord looked at Israel. He looked for justice, but he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he, called, he saw cries of distress. He looked for a people that wanted to represent him well, and what he found was the opposite. So then he looks around at all the nations. We talked about that two weeks ago, and he found the same thing among all the nations. Guess what, folks? It is a broken world. Everywhere he looks, he looks for justice, but finds bloodshed. He looks for righteousness, but find, cry, saw, finds cries of distress. And yet, we are to be his witnesses. How on earth is that going to happen? How do we do that? 
It's very popular in, in Christianity to define witnessing as you going up to someone else and telling them why they need Jesus. I'm not going to argue with that. That's an important part of it, but that's a very tiny part. The concept of witnessing is far bigger than that. And that's what we're going to have to look at today. We start with the premise here at DCC that um, our mission statement, it's etched in glass, you should look at it when you go out. Behind that statement stands the unshakable determination that God can be known. I believe that with all my heart. And even more than that, he desires to be known. He wants Summit County to know him. He does. Listen to our mission statement. Going passionately out of our growing intimacy with God, a caring community for the county and the world, sharing Christ in word and deed. We believe that God can be and desires to be known as the one true living God. I cannot say enough how different Christianity is than every other religion in the world. Hopefully by now you're getting used to this concept because Sunday after Sunday I bring it up with another aspect and we're going to see it again today. The gospel, the good news that we share, is about real events. It's not mythical. It's not hypothetical. It's not conceptual. It's not philosophical. There is elements of that in there. But down at the very core, what we believe, this incredible good news, is based on real events brought about by the one true living God this is true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's take one look at Deuteronomy 4 before we get into Isaiah. In Deuteronomy 4, remember Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, the five books. The Israel is standing on the banks of the river, getting ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses is reminding them one more time what the law is about. Because he's not going to go with them into the promised land because he was foolish. He sinned against the Lord in a particularly blasphemous way. So God won't let him into the land. So he's reminding the nation about the goodness of God and, and who God is. So when they cross over, they have this book. He repeats the law that he was given, and he talks about in Exodus. So Exodus is the beginning of the 40 years. Now we're at the end of the 40 years. And he reminds them again. Now listen to this language in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Ask now about the former days long before your time from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. All right, first of all, ask questions. Challenge your faith. Don't buy everything you read and believe. Mark and I have said many times, if we could get every one of you to start asking questions and go through those dark times, we will have been successful because your faith will become real to you. You hear that? Ask questions. Challenge your faith. Ask the hard questions. Ask the questions, how could a good God allow bad things to happen? That's a great question to wrestle with. We need to talk about that, don't we? So from one end of the heavens to the other, ask all these questions. Has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God? Okay, now he's talking about the Exodus and God's protection during the 40 years of wandering. He led them out of slavery and he took care of them for 40 years. Has, any, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? No, the other gods, we know they're dead, but they didn't know that. 
The other gods didn't speak. Our God is the only God that speaks. He comes to us with wonderful, wonderful words. Words about how to protect ourselves, how to be safe, how to glorify Him, how to live lives in community, how to have healthy relationships. We don't have to go find Him. He finds us. You've heard me tell the story in India about the, at the Hindu temple, the two great, huge, 20-foot-tall concrete uh, elephants, one of their gods. And you buy these... Uh, Rob, were you with me when we were there? On this one? Okay. And you, and you have these... You buy these... Of course, you pay for it. There's pallets of butter about an inch and, inch and a half wide. And you throw it at the elephant. And if it sticks, then the gods won't be angry with you for a year. If it falls off, be careful. <laughs> it seems to me that uh, it would be important which time of the year you go because of the temperature ranges. All right, now we hear this and we're thinking, what? Really? But if you didn't know the truth and you wanted to find out what the gods thought, how would you do it? Our God speaks. He speaks. He comes to us. Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? Isn't that a great question? Do we have a record of that anywhere in history? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? What God did was unprecedented in history. The Exodus serves as the theological foundation for who God is, and it will be for all of eternity. It undergirds the entire Bible from this point on in helping us grasp a God who loves us and cares about us. What he did was unprecedented. The Exodus was the, the greatest experience of all time. This text appeals to facts, to publicly witnessed experiences, to undeniable events as the basis for what it means to be God's witnesses. That's our starting point. The passage reveals the uniqueness of this one true living God who we know as Yahweh. Not Allah, not Buddha. He is Yahweh. He's expressed himself most fully in his son Jesus. This is the foundation for understanding the concept of witnessing to the power of the one true living God. So now let's get back to Isaiah and take a look at this whole concept of witnessing. We're now in Isaiah 42 and 43, starting in 43 today. Now, just by way of summary, Isaiah 1 through 39, the first 39 chapters were written by Isaiah, and they are describing the conditions of the nation in the last half of the 8th century. And we're dealing with the southern kingdom Judah around Jerusalem, the two tribes. The northern kingdom, comprised of the ten tribes, is being annihilated and invaded by Assyria. Assyria is brutal. They're dismantling the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom ceased to exist. The southern kingdom is watching this and knowing that they're within the, they're within the sight, the scope of Assyria. Assyria is going to keep coming. So the king says he has two choices. He can trust this one true living God, um, but God didn't, his God didn't help the northern kingdom, did he? Because they're annihilated. They cease to exist as a nation. Or he can make a peace treaty and try to, try to form a partnership with Assyria, which he does. Ends up being a disaster. 
So the first 39 chapters are God's indictment of the southern kingdom for what they are doing in their faithlessness. Don't do this. It will breed disastrous if you do it. And they decide to do it anyway. So God says, okay, you cross the line in the sand. There's no going back. Even if you repent, I'm not going to relent on my judgment because you have refused to obey me. Starting in chapter 40, we, he's now talking, still Isaiah, I believe, early on, but now he's talking about 150 years later when they have been deported by the Babylonians. Sure enough, the prophecies come true. They're now living in another country. Well, how could God be good? Their nation has ceased to exist. They now are scattered around the empire. And they're wondering, how do we make sense of God? You ever been there? You ever done that? How do I make sense of God when I look at what he's done in my life? You see, back then, the, one of the ways they knew that their God was more powerful was whoever won in a military engagement. My dad's more powerful than your dad. Okay? That's the idea. And so if you lost a military engagement, obviously your God's not as powerful as the other guy. So you see the predicament that they're in now? So here they're in, they're in, they've been deported from chapter 40 through 55. And they're without hope. And so God comes to him, them and begins to talk. They, they pull up these prophecies from Isaiah from 150 years earlier and they can read them now and they can make sense. So this is the context. We're in Isaiah 43. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 7. But now this is what the Lord says, and the Lord is all capitalized. That tells you that this is the personal name of this God, Yahweh. Now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Now remember, they're deported. They're already living in a foreign country. Their nation no longer exists. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now we have references to tribulation and struggle. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. I am your Savior. That's the beginning of the conversation for how he's going to show them the wisdom of his ways and what he's done. All right. This reveals that God, this section, is the only Savior of Israel. Now we're going to step into verse 8. We're going to step into the courtroom scene. And the courtroom scene is a very common metaphor throughout the Old Testament that God is suing the other gods because they have deceived his people. So you picture this courtroom where both sides, God and the gods, pull their witnesses in. Now, I asked you the question earlier, if you are in court, who are you going to want to serve as your witnesses? The best possible. In fact, your lawyers, if you go to court, will, uh, will interview potential witnesses and will rule out your, those that are not going to make you look good if they can. But look what God does in verse 8. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of the gods foretold this? 
and proclaim to us these former things. What had happened? He had just told them about the Exodus. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that the others may hear it and say, it's true. Let the gods bring in their witnesses. And if the witnesses testify, we'll all stand back and say, well, you were right. You see it? See the courtroom scene here? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Now listen to what he had just said in verse 8. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And apart from me there is no Savior. He's making his proclamation in the court. And his witnesses are going to prove him right. Apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? So there appears no hope for the nation. And in the middle of that dark, despairing time, when the nation's gone, dismantled, and they're now in another country, this is what God says to them. Pretty amazing. This great passage reveals a truth that's hard for us to get our minds around because it's not the way we think. If you turn back to chapter 42, just one chapter before, in verse 18, here's what he says about Israel. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. So who are the blind and the deaf? His chosen people. His chosen people. So in the courtroom scene, chapter 13, verse 8, lead out those who have have eyes but are blind but have ears who are deaf. Verse 10, you are my witnesses. That should give us hope. Because you know what? We're idiots too. Aren't we? We are God's witnesses. As broken as we are, and yes, we are broken. There's no way to describe how broken we are. I was having coffee this week with, hate to put this on the microphone, but I will, for all the world to hear. Having coffee with a friend. And he's, uh, he said, uh, he, was, he was talking to somebody he met about Christianity, and the guy said, I don't, I don't want to be about Christianity. And he said, why not? And he said, well, he said, according to, if I understand Christianity correctly, if I divorce my wife and remarry and committing adultery, that's what I did. So apparently now I'm committing adultery all the time because I'm married. So he said, what do you say to that? Because that's Romans 8, by the way. <laughs> it's interesting that a non-Christian would know that that clearly. That's what Romans 8 says. What would you say to that? And I said, well, it depends. Do you want to have a little fun with it? <laughs> I like having fun in my witnessing. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I, t- I said, I'd look at him and say, wait a minute. 
you're committing adultery when you're with your wife, that is awesome. I commit adultery all the time when I lust after a woman. And he goes, what do you mean? He said, Matthew 6, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's the normal part of our lives. He goes, oh my. I hadn't thought about that. We are all guilty of adultery. And we will continue to be. You see what Jesus did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount? Is he raised the standard so high that it is absolutely impossible for you to meet it and at no point in your life will you not be guilty. You've heard it say, not to commit murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your hearts. Later on, Paul's going to say, you argue, you argue Jewish people that you shouldn't steal, but don't you steal when you covet? You see, Jesus did the impossible, what the world had never thought of in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He took the problem out from the realm of behavior and moved it to the heart. It's a heart condition. The standard is so high, you will never meet it. You have no chance, and you will be guilty every day. Does any other religion teach that? If we do not have the risen Lord Jesus, we have no hope. Or as Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. This is us. We are deaf and blind. This is us. These are his witnesses. He now invites these deaf and blind people. By the way, these deaf and blind people, they were so rebellious, they walked away from the Lord and they lost their nation. That's pretty rebellious. That's not accounting for the day-to-day sin. That's, that's, an act of, that's an act of rebellion, of treason, to walk away, and they did. And he says, and you're going to be my witnesses. So you have this great assembly pictured. The other gods are invited to produce their witnesses. God's witnesses are the deaf and blind. The Lord reminds everyone that there's no Savior apart from Him. So what does it mean to be a witness then? What does it mean? It starts with confidence that God is the one true living God. In chapter chapter 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. It starts with absolute confidence that this God is true. I believe in the one true living God. I'm not stupid. Do you? Well, it goes on from there. He says, I am He. I am God. I am eternal. There's no other God before me, nor is there one after me. He makes it very clear in his opening statements in the courtroom. Guys, you got to get it. There is only one God. Only one. He alone is in sovereign control of history. No God had ever interpreted the past, much less the future, according to verse 9. The story is God's story alone. It's His story. There's no way I can overstate how different we are from the other religions. It is His story, and He invites us into it. He alone is the Savior. And the greatest paradox of all is that He entrusts this fantastic cosmic truth to witnesses who are themselves untrustworthy. So, how did that happen? How do we become his witnesses? It's actually pretty simple. 
We become his witnesses not because of what we have done. We become his witnesses because of what he has done. The moment he decided to redeem them anyway, he showed himself to be a very loving and compassionate God. And the moment he decides to redeem you in your moment of brokenness, he shows himself to be a very worthy, a very loving, a very compassionate God. The evidence is in the fact that they are redeemed, not in the words that they say. Aren't you glad that the day you were saved, God didn't sit you down and say, let me give you a list of all the areas we're going to have to work on. We couldn't handle it. He's very patient. He's very, very long-suffering, very loving. And that is what is unique in the world. That is what the world does not expect. We expect you to be held accountable. You're an idiot. You should pay the price. And God says, no, I'll pay the price for you. Is there any better message in the world than that? So the very fact that you are redeemed and sitting here in spite of your sinfulness is a statement of how good our God is. And that is what you witness to. We sang earlier, the whole earth is full of his glory. How is that true? Because of you, Brett. You represent God's glory. Rob, Darley, you represent God's glory. Ben, you represent it. Courtney, you represent it. All of us represent it. That's how the Lord fills the earth with his glory. Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. And so he decides to reveal his glory through a people that are untrustworthy, we're deaf and blind. In other words, we're broken. We could never meet his standard. You don't have to. He meets it for us. You see it? That is the most incredible good news the world has ever seen and heard. One more thing and then we'll stop. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been hauled before the Sanhedrin for healing a man, a lame man, and they're asked, by whose authority are you doing these things? Chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. He can't resist adding, whom you crucified. He always likes to add that in there. It's by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Here's an example of testifying. He didn't go heal this man expecting to be called before the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel. He just is doing a good deed. And he got called before the courts. That may happen to some of you. Maybe not. Many of my friends in uh, Nepal, it does happen to them. If he had only said that this all applied to God, they would have rejoiced and let him go. Because the language that he uses is quoting the Old Testament. But what he does that stuns everybody is he applies it to Jesus. This is Jesus. They couldn't accept it. The result is that 
later on in the chapter, they couldn't stop talking about it. What does it mean to be a credible witness for the Lord? It means believing in this one true God. That's what it means. That's the beginning. I believe in Jesus. I'm not ashamed of that. Don't be afraid to tell people. They'll know who he is. All right? What's the worst that happens? They give you the, the famous eye roll. Oh, not another Christian. You know? You know what you have to do? All you have to do when that happens? I love it when that happens. I do. All you have to do is say, I saw that eye roll. Tell me, tell me your beliefs. I don't know what you think. Oh, you're an atheist? Sweet. Tell me how you got there. I looked at some of the same data you did came to a different conclusion. I'm really interested in hearing your story. What led you to that belief? Engage people. Talk to them. Love them. Care about them. Live out your faith. Don't be ashamed to be called a Christian. That's what a reliable witness is, but it's all based on the fact, the very simple fact, that God chose to redeem you and me because we're no different than our neighbors. Father, thank you. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for doing the unthinkable things that have never been done. You're right. Has any God ever done this? Absolutely not. Does any other religion even think this way? Absolutely not. It is unthinkable. It is a paradox beyond paradox. And we are grateful, Lord. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Um, by the way, Paul says in the Corinthian epistles that when you give, your donation represents your belief in the gospel. It is a form of testifying. So if, if people who don't know Christ yet walk in and observe us, I want them to see smiles in all your faces as you give and for them to say, wow, these people really believe. Look at that. They're really concerned about these Christians in Nepal or they really want to help the people of Summit County. Whatever. Look at them give. So just be aware that you're now testifying the moment you give. Thanks for your generosity. I see your face in every sunrise. The colors of the morning are inside.
I will never tire of telling you the story and quoting to you the verses around communion. As long as I'm alive, they're wonderful verses. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the what? What did he take? Bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Sacrifice. After supper, he took the cup. This cup represents a new covenant in my blood, an entirely new way of relating to this one true living God and relating to each other. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds a phrase that's astounding. As often as you do this, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. Who are we proclaiming it to? You ever think about that? Who are we proclaiming it to? We're standing in the courtroom, the assembly of all the gods, and when we do this, we're proclaiming his death. This is a form of testimony. You probably didn't think of communion that way, did you? It's what we believe. We're saying this is what we believe. If you want to join us in our confession, then come serve, come partake communion, receive it. When you come up here, stop and pray with one of us. We love to pray. Father, thank you for giving us another way just to proclaim, Lord, our belief and our allegiance to you. We do believe in your son, Jesus. Amen. Come and enjoy communion.
started by saying that uh, our belief is based on facts as well as faith, both. They come together, a reasoned faith. And so um, all the eyewitness accounts, as Mark said in the children's sermon, which is brilliant, we weren't eyewitnesses, we weren't there. So where did all the eyewitnesses account end up? In the Bible, right? That's why we hold the Bible so dear, so important, because it ended up there. And when you read the Bible, guess what you're hearing? You're hearing the stories of the eyewitnesses who were there and saw it, many of whom paid the price for their own lives. Now, you may not be an eyewitness, but their story helps you to make sense of your life. It helps you to recognize when God is present because he does the same thing in your life that he does in their lives because you're deaf and blind too. And so he works that way. That's how we are witnesses, by recognizing the glory of the Lord and his, his, uh, his grace and his compassion and his mercy in our lives. Aren't we grateful for that? Yeah? Have a great week. Go in peace.